0: Chapter Twenty Nine of *The Vicar of Bullhampton*. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. *The Vicar of Bullhampton* by Anthony Trollop Chapter Twenty Nine: The Bull at Loring. Gilmore had told his friend that he would do two things: that he would start off and travel for four or five years, and that he would pay a visit to Loring fenwick had advised him to do neither but to stay at home and dig and say his prayers but in such emergencies no man takes his friend's advice and when mr chamberlain had left him gilmore had made up his mind that he would at any rate go to loring he went to church on the sunday morning and was half resolved to tell mrs fenwick of his purpose but chance delayed her in the church and he sauntered away home without having mentioned it he let half the next week pass by without stirring beyond his own ground during those three days He changed his mind half a dozen times, but at last, on the Thursday, he had his portmanteau packed and started on his journey. As he was preparing to leave the house, he wrote one line to Fenwick in pencil, "'I am this moment off to Loring, H. G.' This he left in the village as he drove through to the Westbury station. He had formed no idea in his own mind of any definite purpose in going. He did not know what he should do or what say when he got to Loring he had told himself a hundred times that any persecution of the girl on his part would be mean and unworthy of him and he was also aware that no condition in which a man could place himself was more open to contempt than that of a whining pining unsuccessful lover a man is bound to take a woman's decision against him bear it as he may and say as little against it as possible he is bound to do so when he is convinced that a woman's decision is final, and there can be no stronger proof of such finality than the fact that she has declared a preference for some other man. All this Gilmore knew, but he would not divest himself of the idea that there might still be some turn in the wheel of fortune. He had heard a vague rumour that Captain Marrable, his rival, was a very dangerous man. His uncle was quite sure that the captain's father was thoroughly bad, and had thrown out hints against the son, which Gilmore, in his anxiety, magnified, till he felt convinced that the girl whom he loved with all his heart was going to throw herself into the arms of a thorough scamp. Could he not do something, if not for his own sake, then for hers? Might it not be possible for him to deliver her from her danger? What, if he should discover some great iniquity, would she not then in her gratitude be softened towards him? It was on the cards that this reprobate was married already, and was about to commit bigamy. It was quite probable that such a man should be deeply in debt, As for the fortune that had been left to him, Mr. Chamberlain had already ascertained that that amounted to nothing. It had been consumed to the last shilling in paying the joint debts of the father and son. Men such as Mr. Chamberlain have sources of information which are marvellous to the minds of those who are more secluded, and not the less marvellous because the information is invariably false. Gilmore in this way almost came to a conviction that Mary Lowther was about to sacrifice herself to a man utterly unworthy of her, and he taught himself not to think but to believe it to be possible, that he might save her. Those who knew him would have said that he was the last man in the world to be carried away by a romantic notion, but he had his own idea of romance as plainly developed in his mind as was ever the case with a knight of old, who went forth for the relief of a distressed damsel. If he could do anything towards saving her, he would do it, or at least try to do it, though he should be brought to ruin in the attempt. Might it not be that at last he would have the reward which other knights always attained? the chance in his favour was doubtless small but the world was nothing to him without this chance he had never been at loring before but he had learned the way he went to chippenham and swindon and then by the train to loring he had no very definite plan formed for himself he rather thought that he would call at miss marrable's house call if possible when mary lowther was not there and learn from the elder lady something of the facts of the case he had been well aware for many weeks past from early days in the summer, that old Miss Marrable had been in favour of his claim. He had heard, too, that there had been family quarrels among the Marables, and a word had been dropped in his hearing by Mrs. Fenwick, which had implied that Miss Marrable was by no means pleased with the match which her niece, Mary Lowther, was proposing to herself. Everything seemed to show that Captain Marrable was a most undesirable person. When he reached the station at Loring it was incumbent on him to go some somewhither at once. He must provide for himself for the night." he found two omnibuses at the station, and two inn-servants competing with great ardor for his carpet-bag. There were the dragon and the bull fighting for him. The bull in the low town was commercial and prosperous. The dragon at uphill was aristocratic, devoted to county purposes, and rather hard set to keep its jaws open and its tail flying. Prosperity is always becoming more prosperous, and the allurements of the bull prevailed." Are you going to rob the gent of his wallys? said the indignant boots of the bull as he rescued Mr. Gilmore's property from the hands of his natural enemy. As soon as he had secured the entrance of Mr. Gilmore into his own vehicle, had Mr. Gilmore known that the dragon was next door but one to Miss Marrable's house, and that the bull was nearly equally contiguous to that in which Captain Marrable was residing, his choice probably would not have been altered. In such cases, the knight who is to be the deliverer desires above all things that he may be near to his enemy. He was shown up to a bedroom and then ushered into the commercial room of the house. Loring, though it does a very pretty trade as a small town, and now has for some years been regarded as a thriving place in its degree, is not of such importance in the way of business as to support a commercial inn of the first class. At such houses, the commercial room is as much closed against the uninitiated as is a first-class club in London. In such rooms, a non-commercial man would be almost as much astray as is a non-broker in Capel Court or an attorney in a bar mess room at the Bull things were a little mixed the very fact that the words commercial room were painted on the door proved to those who understood such matters that there was a doubt in the case they had no coffee room at the Bull, and strangers who came that way were of necessity shown into that in which the gentlemen of the road were wont to relax themselves certain commercial laws are maintained in such apartments cigars are not allowed before nine o'clock except upon some distinct arrangement with the waiter there is not as a rule a regular daily commercial repast but when three or more gentlemen dine together at five o'clock the dinner becomes a commercial dinner and the commercial laws as to wine etc are enforced with more or less restriction as circumstances may seem to demand at the present time there was but one occupant of the chamber to greet mr gilmore when he entered and this greeting was made with all the full honours of commercial courtesy the commercial gentleman is of his nature gregarious and although he be exclusive to a strong degree more so probably than almost any other man in regard to the sacred hour of dinner when in the full glory of his confraternity he will condescend when the circumstances of his profession have separated him from his professional brethren to be festive with almost any gentleman whom chance may throw in his way mr cocky had been alone for a whole day when gilmore arrived having reached loring just twenty-four hours in advance of our friend and was contemplating the sadly diminished joys of a second solitary dinner at the bull when fortune threw this stranger in his way the waiter looking at the matter in a somewhat similar light and aware that a combined meal would be for the advantage of all parties very soon assisted mr cocky in making his arrangements for the evening mr gilmore would no doubt want to dine dinner would be served at five o'clock mr cocky was going to dine and mr gilmore the waiter thought would probably be glad to join him mr cocky expressed himself as delighted and would only be too happy now men in love let their case be ever so bad must dine or die So much, no doubt, is not admitted by the chroniclers of the old knights who went forth after their ladies, but the old chroniclers, if they soared somewhat higher than do those of the present day, are admitted to have been, on the whole, less circumstantially truthful. Our knight was very sad at heart, and would have done according to his prowess, as much as any Orlando of them all, for the lady whom he loved, but nevertheless he was an hungered the mention of dinner was pleasant to him and he accepted the joint courtesies of mr cocky and the waiter with gratitude the codfish and beefsteak though somewhat woolly and tough were wholesome and the pint of sherry which at mr cocky's suggestion was supplied to them if not of itself wholesome was innocent by reason of its dimensions mr cocky himself was pleasant and communicative and told mr gilmore a good deal about loring our friend was afraid to ask any leading questions as to the persons in the place who interested himself feeling conscious that his own subject was one which would not bear touch from a rough hand he did at last venture to make inquiry about the clergyman of the parish mr cocky with some merriment at his own wit declared that the church was a house of business at which he did not often call for orders though he had been coming to loring now for four years he had never heard anything of the clergyman but the waiter no doubt would tell him gilmore rather hesitated and protested that he cared little for the matter but the waiter was called in and questioned, and was soon full of stories about old Mister Marrable. He was a good sort of man in his way, the waiter thought, but not much of a preacher. The people liked him because he never interfered with them. You don't go poking his nose into people's ouses like some of em said the waiter, who then began to tell of the pertinacity in that respect of a younger clergyman at Uphill. Yes, Parson Marrable had a relation living at Uphill—an old lady. No, not his grandmother. This was in an answer to a joke on the part of Mister Cocky nor yet a daughter the waiter thought that she was some kind of a cousin though he did not know what kind a very grand lady was miss marrable according to his showing and much thought of by the quality there was a young lady living with her though the waiter did not know the young lady's name does the reverend mr marrable live alone asked gilmore well yes for the most part quite alone but just at present he had a visitor then the waiter told all that he knew about the captain the most material part of this was that the captain had returned from london that very evening had come in by the express while the two gents were at dinner and had been taken to the lowtown parsonage by the bull bus quite that gentleman was the captain according to the waiter and one of the handsomest gents as ever he'd set his eyes upon damn him said poor harry gilmore to himself then he ventured upon another question did the waiter know anything of captain marrable's father the waiter only knew that the captain's father was a military gent and was all up in the army from all which the only information which gilmore received was the fact that the match between marrable and mary lowther had not as yet become the talk of the town after dinner mr cocky proposed a glass of toddy and a cigar remarking that he would move a bill for dispensing with the smoking rule for that night only and to this also gilmore assented now that he was at loring he did not know what to do with himself better than drinking toddy with mr mr cocky declared the bill to be carried nem con and the cigars and toddy were produced mr cocky remarked that he had heard of sir gregory marrable of dunripple park he travelled in warwickshire and was in the habit as he said of fishing up little facts sir gregory wasn't much of a man according to his account the estate was small and as mr cocky fancied a little out at elbows mr cocky thought it all very well to be a country gentleman and a barrow knight as he called it as long as you had an estate to follow but he thought very little of a title without plenty of stuff commerce according to his notions was the backbone of the nation and that the core of travelling commercial gentlemen was the backbone of trade every child knew mr cocky became warm and friendly as he drank his toddy now i don't know what you are sir said he i'm not very much of anything said gilmore perhaps not sir let that be as it may but a man sir that feels that he's one of the supports of the commercial supremacy of this nation ain't got much reason to be ashamed of himself not on that account certainly nor yet on no other account as long as he's true to his employers now you talk of country gentlemen i didn't talk of them said gilmore well no you didn't but they do you know what does a country gentleman know and what does he do What's the country the better of him? He hunts and he shoots and he goes to bed with his skin full of wine and then he gets up and he hunts and he shoots again and has his skin full once more. That's about all. Sometimes he's a magistrate. Yes, justice is justice. We all know about that. Put an old man in prison for a week because he looks into his A-field on a Sunday or send a young one to the treadmill for two months because he knocks over an heir. all them cases ought to be tried in the towns and there should be beaks paid as there is in london i don't see the good of a country gentleman buying and selling that's what the world has to go by they buy and sell land no they don't they buy a bit now and then when they're screws and they sell a bit now and then when the eating and drinking has gone too fast but as for capital and investment they know nothing about it after all they ain't getting above two and a half percent for their money we all know what that must come to mr cocky had been so mild before the pint of sherry and the glass of toddy that mr gilmore was somewhat dismayed by the change mr cocky however in his altered aspect seemed to be so much the less gracious that gilmore left him and strolled out into the town he climbed up the hill and walked round the church and looked up at the windows of miss marrable's house of which he had learned the sight but he had no adventure saw nothing that interested him and at half-past nine took himself wearily to bed that same day captain marrable had run down from london to loring laden with terrible news the money on which he had counted was all gone what do you mean said his uncle have the lawyers been deceiving you all through what is it to me said the ruined man it is all gone they have satisfied me that nothing more can be done parson john whistled with a long-drawn note of wonder The people they were dealing with would be willing enough to give up the money, but it's all gone. It's spent, and there's no trace of it. Poor fellow. I've seen my father, Uncle John. And what passed? I told him that he was a scoundrel, and then I left him. I didn't strike him. I should hope not that, Walter. I kept my hands off him, but when a man has ruined you as he has me, it doesn't much matter who he is. Your father and any other man are much the same to you then. He was worn and old and pale or i should have felled him to the ground and what will you do now just go to that hell upon earth on the other side of the globe there's nothing else to be done i've applied for extension of leave and told them why nothing more was said that night between the uncle and nephew and no word had been spoken about mary lowther on the next morning the breakfast at the parsonage passed by in silence parson john had been thinking a good deal of mary but had resolved that it was best that he should hold his tongue for the present. From the moment in which he had first heard of the engagement, he had made up his mind that his nephew and Mary Lowther would never be married. Seeing what his nephew was, or rather seeing that which he fancied his nephew to be, he was sure that he would not sacrifice himself by such a marriage. There was always a way out of things, and Walter Marrable would be sure to find it. The way out of it had been found now with a vengeance immediately after breakfast the captain took his hat without a word and walked steadily up the hill to uphill lane as he passed the door of the bull he saw but took no notice of a gentleman who was standing under the covered entrance to the inn and who had watched him coming out from the parsonage gate but gilmore the moment that his eyes fell upon the captain declared to himself that that was his rival captain marrable walked straight up the hill and knocked at miss marrable's door was miss lowther at home of course miss lowther was at home at such an hour the girl said that miss mary was alone in the breakfast parlour miss marrable had already gone down to the kitchen without waiting for another word he walked into the little back room and there he found his love walter she said jumping up and running to him how good of you to come so soon we didn't expect you these two days she had thrown herself into his arms but though he embraced her he did not kiss her there is something the matter she said what is it as she spoke she drew away from him and looked up into his face he smiled and shook his head still holding her by the waist tell me walter i know there is something wrong it is only that dirty money my father has succeeded in getting it all oh walter said she again drawing herself away every shilling said he dropping his arm that will be very bad not a doubt of it i felt it just as you do And all our pretty plans are gone. Yes, all our pretty plans. And what shall you do now? There is only one thing. I shall go to India again. Of course it is just the same to me, as though I were told that sentence of death had gone against me. Only it will not be so soon over. Don't say that, Walter. Why not say it, my dear, when I feel it? But you don't feel it. I know it must be bad for you, but it is not quite that. "'I will not think that you have nothing left worth living for. "'I can't ask you to go with me to that happy paradise.' "'But I can ask you to take me,' she said, "'though perhaps it will be better that I should not.' "'My darling, my own darling!' "'Then she came back to him and laid her head upon his shoulders, "'and lifted his hand till it came again round her waist, "'and he kissed her forehead and smoothed her hair. "'Swear to me,' she said, "'that whatever happens you will not put me away from you.' "'Put you away, dearest! A man does not put away the only morsel he has to keep him from starving. But yet, as I came up here this morning, I resolved that I would put you away. "'Walter! And even now I know that they will tell me that I should do so. How can I take you out there to lead such a life as that, without having the means of keeping a house over your head?' "'Officers do marry without fortunes.' "'Yes. And what sort of a time do their wives have?' Oh, Mary, my own, my own, my own, it is very bad. You cannot understand it all at once, but it is very bad. If it be better for you, Walter, she said, again drawing herself away, it is not that, and do not say that it is. Let us at any rate trust each other. She gave herself a little shake before she answered him. I will trust you in everything, as God is my judge in everything. What you tell me to do, I will do. But, Walter, I will say one thing first. I can look forward to nothing but absolute misery in any life that will separate me from you. I know the difference between comfort and discomfort in money matters, but all that is as a feather in the balance. You are my God upon earth, and to you I must cling. Whether you be away from me or with me, I must cling to you the same. If I am to be separated from you for a time, I can do it with hope. If I am to be separated from you for ever, "'I shall still do so, with despair. "'And now I will trust you, and I will do whatever you tell me. "'If you forbid me to call you mine any longer, I will obey, "'and I will never reproach you.' "'I will always be yours,' he said, taking her again to his heart. "'Then, dearest, you shall not find me wanting for anything you may ask of me. "'Of course you can't decide at present.' "'I have decided that I must go to India. "'I have asked for the exchange. "'Yes, I understand, but about our marriage.' It may be that you should go out first. I would not be unmaidenly, Walter, but remember this, the sooner the better, if I can be a comfort to you. But I can bear any delay rather than be a clog upon you. Marable, as he had walked up the hill, and during all his thoughts, indeed, since he had been convinced that the money was gone from him, had been disposed to think that his duty to Mary required him to give her up. He had asked her to be his wife, when he believed his circumstances to be other than they were, and now he knew that the life he had to offer her was one of extreme discomfort he had endeavoured to shake off any idea that as he must go back to india it would be more comfortable for himself to return without than with a wife he wanted to make the sacrifice of himself and had determined that he would do so now at any rate for the moment all his resolves were thrown to the wind his own love was so strong and was so gratified by her love that half his misery was carried away in an enthusiasm of romantic devotion let the worst come to the worst the man that was so loved by such a woman could not be of all men the most miserable he left the house giving to her the charge of telling the bad news to miss marrable and as he went he saw in the street before the house the man whom he had seen standing an hour before under the gateway of the inn and gilmore saw him too and well knew where he had been. End of chapter 29